Chapter Fifteen, Part Two of the Voyage of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gavin Smith. The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin, Chapter Fifteen, Part Two, Passage of the Cordillera. March twenty-second. After eating our potatoeless breakfast, we travelled across the intermediate track to the foot of the Portillo Range. In the middle of summer, cattle are brought up here to graze, but they had now all been removed. Even the greater number of the Guanacos had decamped, knowing well that if overtaken here by a snowstorm, they would be caught in a trap. We had a fine view of a mass of mountains called Tupungato, the whole clothed with an unbroken snow, in the middle of which there was a blue patch, no doubt a glacier, a circumstance of rare occurrence in these mountains. Now commenced a heavy and long climb, similar to that of the Pucanis. Bold conical hills of red granite rose on each hand. In the valleys there were several broad fields of perpetual snow. These frozen masses, during the process of thawing, had in some parts been converted into pinnacles or columns, which, as they were high and close together, made it difficult for the cargo mules to pass. Footnote. This structure in frozen snow was long since observed by Scoresby in the icebergs near Spitzbergen, and, lately, with more care, by Colonel Jackson, Journal of Geographical Society, Volume 5, page 12, on the Neva. Mr. Lyell, Principles, Volume 4, page 360, has compared the fissures by which the columnar structures seem to be determined to the joints that traverse nearly all rocks, but which are best seen in the non-stratified masses. I may observe that in the case of the frozen snow, the columnar structures must be owing to a metamorphic action, and not to a process during deposition. End footnote. On one of these columns of ice, a frozen horse was sticking up as on a pedestal, but with its hind legs straight up in the air. The animal, I suppose, must have fallen with its head downwards into a hole, where the snow was continuous, and afterwards the surrounding parts must have been removed by the thaw. When nearly on the crest of the Portillo, we were enveloped in a falling cloud of minute frozen spicula. This was very unfortunate, as it continued the whole day and quite intercepted our view. The pass takes its name of Portillo from a narrow cleft or doorway on the highest ridge through which the road passes. From this point, on a clear day, those vast plains which uninterruptedly extend to the Atlantic Ocean can be seen. We descended to the upper limit of vegetation and found good quarters for the night under the shelter of some large fragments of rock. We met here some passengers, who made anxious inquiries about the state of the road. Shortly after it was dark, the clouds suddenly cleared away, and the effect was quite magical. The great mountains, bright with the full moon, seemed impending over us on all sides, as over a deep crevice. One morning, very early, I witnessed the same striking effect. As soon as the clouds were dispersed, it froze severely, but as there was no wind, we slept very comfortably. The increased brilliancy of the moon and stars at this elevation, owing to the perfect transparency of the atmosphere, was very remarkable. Travellers, having observed the difficulty of judging heights and distances amidst lofty mountains, have generally attributed it to the absence of objects of comparison. It appears to me that it is fully as much owing to the transparency of the air confounding objects at different distances, and likewise partly to the novelty of an unusual degree of fatigue arising from a little exertion habit being thus opposed to the evidence of the senses. I am sure that this extreme clearness of the air gives a peculiar character to the landscape, 
all objects appearing to be brought nearly into one plane, as in a drawing or panorama. The transparency is, I presume, owing to the equable and high state of atmospheric dryness. This dryness was shown by the manner in which woodwork shrank, as, soon as, as I soon found by the trouble my geological hammer gave me, by articles of food, such as bread and sugar, becoming extremely hard, and by the preservation of the skin and parts of the flesh of the beasts which had perished on the road. To the same cause we must attribute the singular facility with which electricity is excited. My flannel waistcoat, when rubbed in the dark, appeared as if it had been washed with phosphorus. Every hair on a dog's back crackled. Even the linen sheets and leathern straps of the saddle, when handled, emitted sparks. March 23rd. The descent on the eastern side of the Cordillera is much shorter or steeper than on the Pacific side. In other words, the mountains rise more abruptly from the plains than from the alpine country of Chile. A level and brilliantly white sea of clouds was stretched out beneath our feet, shutting out the view of the equally level Pampas. We soon entered the band of clouds, and did not again emerge from it that day. About noon, finding pasture for the animals and bushes for the firewood at Los Arenales, we stopped for the night. This was near the uppermost limit of bushes, and the elevation, I suppose, was between seven and eight thousand feet. I was much struck with the marked difference between the vegetation of these eastern valleys and those on the Chilean side, yet the climate, as well as the kind of soil, is nearly the same, and the difference of longitude very trifling. The same remark holds good with the quadrupeds, and in a lesser degree with the birds and insects. I may instance the mice, of which I obtained thirteen species on the shores of the Atlantic, and five on the Pacific, and not one of them is identical. We must accept all those species which habitually or occasionally frequent elevated mountains, and certain birds which range as far south as the Strait of Magellan. This fact is in perfect accordance with the geological history of the Andes, for these mountains have existed as a great barrier since the present races of animals have appeared, and, therefore, unless we suppose the same species to have been created in two different places, we ought not to expect any closer similarity between the organic beings on the opposite sides of the Andes than on the opposite shores of the ocean. In both cases, we must leave out of the question those kinds which have been able to cross the barrier, whether of solid rock or salt water. Footnote. This is merely an illustration of the admirable laws first laid down by Mr. Lyell, on the geographical distribution of animals, as influenced by geological changes. The whole reasoning, of course, is founded on the assumption of the immutability of species. Otherwise, the difference in the species in the two regions might be considered as superinduced during a length of time. End footnote. A great number of the plants and animals were absolutely the same as, or most closely allied to, those of Patagonia. We have here the agouti, biscacha, three species of armadillo, the ostrich, certain kinds of partridges and other birds, none of which are ever seen in Chile, but are the characteristic animals of the desert plains of Patagonia. We have likewise many of the same, to the eyes of a person who is not a botanist, thorny stunted bushes, withered grass, and dwarf plants. Even the black slowly crawling beetles are closely similar, and some, I believe, on rigorous examination, absolutely identical. It had always been to me a subject of regret that we are unavoidably compelled to give up the ascent of the Santa Cruz River before reaching the mountains. I had always had a latent hope of meeting with some great change in the features of the country, but I now feel sure that it would only have been following the plains of Patagonia up a mountainous ascent. March 24th. 
Early in the morning I climbed up a mountain on one side of the valley, and enjoyed a far-extended view over the pampas. This was a spectacle to which I had always looked forward with interest, but I was disappointed. At the first glance it much resembled a distant view of the ocean, but in the northern parts many irregularities were soon distinguishable. The most striking feature consisted in the rivers, which, facing the rising sun, glittered like silver threads till lost in the immensity of the distance. At midday we descended the valley and reached a hovel, where an officer and three soldiers were posted to examine passports. One of these men was a thoroughbred Pampas Indian. He was kept much for the same purpose as a bloodhound, to track out any person who might pass by secretly, either on foot or horseback. Some years ago a passenger endeavoured to escape detection by making a long circuit over a neighbouring mountain, but this Indian, having by chance crossed his track, followed it for the whole day over dry and very stony hills, till at last he came on his prey hidden in a gully. We here heard that the silvery clouds, which we had admired from the bright region above, had poured down torrents of rain. The valley from this point gradually opened, and the hills became mere water-worn hillocks compared to the giants behind. It then expanded into a gently sloping plain of shingle, covered with low trees and bushes. This talus, although appearing narrow, must be nearly ten miles wide before it blends into the apparently dead-level pampas. We passed the only house in this neighbourhood, the Estancia of Chaquillo, and at sunset we pulled up in the first snug corner, and there bivouacked. March 25th. I was reminded of the pampas of Buenos Aires by seeing the disk of the rising sun intersected by a horizon level as that of the ocean. During the night a heavy dew fell, a circumstance which we did not experience within the Cordillera. The road proceeded for some distance due east across a low swamp, then meeting the dry plain, it turned to the north towards Mendoza. The distance is two very long days' journey. Our first day's journey was called fourteen leagues to Estacado, and the second seventeen to Luxan, near Mendoza. The whole distance is over a level desert plain, with not more than two or three houses. The sun was exceedingly powerful, and the ride devoid of all interest. There is very little water in this traversia, and in our second day's journey we found only one little pool. Little water flows from the mountains, and it soon becomes absorbed by the dry and porous soil, so that, although we travelled at the distance of only ten or fifteen miles from the outer range of the Cordillera, we did not cross a single stream. In many parts the ground was encrusted with a saline efflorescence, hence we had the same salt-loving plants which are common near Bahia Blanca. The landscape has a uniform character from the Strait of Magellan along the whole eastern coast of Patagonia to the Rio Colorado, and it appears that the same kind of country extends inland from this river in a sweeping line as far as San Luis and perhaps even further north. To the eastwards of this curved line lies the basin of the comparatively damp and green plains of Buenos Aires. The sterile plains of Mendoza and Patagonia consist of a bed of shingle worn smooth and accumulated by the waves of the sea, whilst the pampas, covered with thistles, clover, and grass, have been formed by the ancient estuary mud of the Plata. After our two days' tedious journey, it was refreshing to see in the distance the rows of poplars and willows growing round the village and river of Luxan. Shortly before we arrived at this place, we observed to the south a ragged cloud of dark reddish-brown colour, at first we thought that it was smoke from some great fire on the plains, but we soon found that it was a swarm of locusts. 
They were flying northward, and with the aid of a light breeze, they overtook us at a rate of ten or fifteen miles an hour. The main body filled the air from a height of twenty feet to that, as it appeared, of two or three thousand above the ground. And the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle, or, rather I should say, like a strong breeze passing through the rigging of a ship. The sky, seen through the advanced guard, appeared like a mezzotinto engraving, but the main body was impervious to sight. They were not, however, so thick together, but that they could escape a stick waved backwards and forwards. When they alighted, they were more numerous than the leaves of the field, and the surface became reddish instead of being green. The swarm having once alighted, the individuals flew from side to side in all directions. Locusts are not an uncommon pest in this country. Already during the season, several smaller swarms have come up from the south, where, as apparently in all other parts of the world, they are bred in the deserts. The poor cottagers in vain attempted by lighting fires, by shouts, and by waving branches to avert the attack. This species of locust closely resembles, and perhaps is identical with, the famous Gryllus migratorius of the east. We crossed the Luxan, which is a river of considerable size, though its course towards the seacoast is very imperfectly known. It is even doubtful whether, in passing over the plains, it is not evaporated and lost. We slept in the village of Luxan, which is a small place surrounded by gardens, and forms the most southern cultivated district in the province of Mendoza. It is five leagues south of the capital. At night I experienced an attack, for it deserves no lesser name, of the Bencucha, a species of the Reduvius, the great black bug of the pampas. It is most disgusting to feel soft, wingless insects, about an inch long, crawling over one's body. Before sucking they are quite thin, but afterwards they become round and bloated with blood, and in this state are easily crushed. One which I caught at Iquique, for they are found in Chile and Peru, was very empty. When placed on a table, and though surrounded by people, if a finger was presented, the bold insect would immediately protrude its sucker, make a charge, and, if allowed, draw blood. No pain was caused by the wound. It was curious to watch its body during the act of sucking, as in less than ten minutes it changed from being flat as a wafer to a globular form. This one feast, for which the Bencucha was indebted to one of the officers, kept it fat during four whole months, but, after the first fortnight, it was quite ready to have another suck. March 27th we rode on to Mendoza. The country was beautifully cultivated, and resembled Chile. This neighbourhood is celebrated for its fruit, and certainly nothing could appear more flourishing than the vineyards and the orchards of figs, peaches, and olives. We bought watermelons nearly twice as large as a man's head, most deliciously cool and well-flavoured, for a halfpenny apiece, and for the value of threepence, half a wheelbarrow full of peaches. The cultivated and enclosed part of this province is very small. There is little more than that which we pass through between Luxan and the capital. The land, as in Chile, owes its fertility entirely to artificial irrigation, and it is really wonderful to observe how extraordinarily productive a barren traversia is thus rendered. We stayed the ensuing day in Mendoza. The prosperity of the place has much declined of late years. The inhabitants say, It is good to live in, but very bad to grow rich in. The lower orders have the lounging, reckless manner of the gauchos of the pampas, and their dress, riding gear, and habits of life are nearly the same. To my mind the town has a stupid, forlorn aspect. 
Neither the boasted Alameda, nor the scenery, is at all comparable with that of Santiago. But to those who, coming from Buenos Aires, have just crossed the unvaried pampas, the gardens and orchards must appear delightful. Sir F. Head, speaking of the inhabitants, says, They eat their dinners, and it is so very hot, they go to sleep. And could they do better? I quite agree with Sir F. Head. The happy doom of the Mendozinos is to eat, sleep, and be idle. March 29th. We set out on our return to Chile, by the Uspallata Pass situated north of Mendoza. We had to cross a long and most sterile traversia of fifteen leagues. The soil in parts was absolutely bare, in others covered by numberless dwarf cacti, armed with formidable spines, and called by the inhabitants little lions. There were also a few low bushes. Although the plain is nearly three thousand feet above the sea, the sun was very powerful, and the heat, as well as the clouds of impalpable dust, rendered the travelling extremely irksome. Our course during the day lay nearly parallel to the Cordillera, but gradually approaching them. Before sunset we entered one of the wide valleys, or rather bays, which open on the plain. This soon narrowed into a ravine, where a little higher up the house of Villa Vicencio is situated. As we had ridden all day without a drop of water, both our mules and selves were very thirsty, and we looked out anxiously for the stream which flows down this valley. It was curious to observe how gradually the water made its appearance. On the plain the course was quite dry. By degrees it became a little damper. Then puddles of water appeared. These soon became connected, and at Villa Vicencio there was a nice little rivulet. 30th. The solitary hovel which bears the imposing name of Villa Vicencio has been mentioned by every traveller who has crossed the Andes. I stayed here and at some neighbouring mines during the two succeeding days. The geology of the surrounding country is very curious. The Uspallata range is separated from the main cordillera by a long narrow plain or basin, like those so often mentioned in Chile, but higher, being 6,000 feet above the sea. This range has nearly the same geographical position with respect to the cordillera, which the gigantic Portillo line has, but it is of a totally different origin. It consists of various kinds of submarine lava, alternating with volcanic sandstones and other remarkable sedimentary deposits, the whole having a very close resemblance to some of the tertiary beds on the shores of the Pacific. From this resemblance I expected to find silicified wood, which is generally characteristic of these formations. I was gratified in a very extraordinary manner. In the central part of the range, at an elevation of about 7,000 feet, I observed on a bare slope some snow-white projecting columns. These were petrified trees, eleven being silicified, and from thirty to forty converted into coarsely crystallized white calcareous spar. They were abruptly broken off, the upright stumps projecting a few feet above the ground. The trunks measured from three to five feet each in circumference. They stood a little way apart from each other, but the whole formed one group. Mr. Robert Brown has been kind enough to examine the wood. He says it belongs to the fir tribe, partaking of the character of the Araucarian family, but with some curious points of affinity with the yew. The volcanic sandstone in which the trees were embedded, and from the lower part of which they must have sprung, had accumulated in successive thin layers around their trunks, and the stone yet retained the impression of the bark. It requires little geological practice to interpret the marvellous story which this scene at once unfolded. 
though I confess I was at first so much astonished that I could scarcely believe the plainest evidence. I saw the spot where a cluster of fine trees once waved their branches on the shores of the Atlantic, when that ocean, now driven back seven hundred miles, came to the foot of the Andes. I saw that they had sprung from a volcanic soil which had been raised above the level of the sea, and that subsequently this dry land, with its upright trees, had been let down into the depths of the ocean. In these depths, the formerly dry land was covered by sedimentary beds, and these again by enormous streams of submarine lava, one such mass attaining the thickness of a thousand feet. And these deluges of molten stone and aqueous deposits five times alternately had been spread out. The ocean which had received such thick masses must have been profoundly deep, but again the subterranean forces exerted themselves, and I now beheld the bed of that ocean, forming a chain of mountains more than seven thousand feet in height. Nor had those antagonistic forces been dormant, which were always at work wearing down the surface of the land. The great piles of strata had been intersected by many wide valleys, and the trees now changed into silex were exposed, projecting from the volcanic soil, now changed into rock, whence formerly, in a green and budding state, they had raised their lofty heads. Now all is utterly irreclaimable and desert. Even the lichen cannot adhere to the stony casts of former trees. Vast and scarcely comprehensible as such changes must ever appear, yet they have all occurred within a period recent when compared with the history of the Cordillera, and the Cordillera itself is absolutely modern as compared with many of the fossiliferous strata of Europe and America. April 1st. We crossed the Uspalata range, and at night slept at the custom house, the only inhabited spot on the plain. Shortly before leaving the mountains, there was a very extraordinary view. Red, purple, green, and quite white sedimentary rocks, alternating with black lavas, were broken up and thrown into all kinds of disorder by masses of porphyry of every shade of colour, from dark brown to the brightest lilac. It was the first view I ever saw which really resembled those pretty sections which geologists make of the inside of the earth. The next day we crossed the plain and followed the course of the great mountain stream which flows by Luxan. Here it was a furious torrent, quite impassable, and appeared larger than in the low country, as was the case with the rivulet of Villa Vicencio. On the evening of the succeeding day we reached the Rio de la Vecas, which is considered the worst stream in the Cordillera to cross. As all these rivers have a rapid and short course, and are formed by the melting of the snow, the hour of the day makes a considerable difference in their volume. In the evening the stream is muddy and full, but about daybreak it becomes clearer, and much less impetus. This we found to be the case with the Rio Vacas, and in the morning we crossed it with little difficulty. The scenery was thus far very uninteresting, compared with that of the Portillo Pass. Little can be seen beyond the bare walls of the once grand flat-bottomed valley, which the road follows up to the highest crest. The valley and the huge rocky mountains are extremely barren. During the two previous nights the poor mules had absolutely nothing to eat, for, excepting a few low resinous bushes, scarcely a plant can be seen. In the course of this day we crossed some of the worst passes in the Cordillera but their danger has been much exaggerated. I was told that if I attempted to pass on foot, my head would turn giddy, and that there was no room to dismount, but I did not see a place where anyone might not have walked over backwards, or got off his mule on either side. One of the bad passes, called Las Animos, the Souls, I had crossed, 
and did not find out till a day afterwards that it was one of the awful dangers. No doubt there are many parts in which, if the mule should stumble, the rider would be hurled down a great precipice, but of this there is little chance. I dare say, in the spring, the laderas, or roads, which each year are formed anew across the piles of fallen detritus, are very bad, but from what I saw, I suspect the real danger is nothing. With cargo mules the case is rather different, for the loads project so far that the animals, occasionally running against each other, or against a point of rock, lose their balance, and are thrown down the precipices. In crossing the rivers I can well believe that the difficulty may be very great. At this season there was little trouble, but in the summer they must be very hazardous. I can quite imagine, as Sir F. Head describes, the different expressions of those who have passed the gulf, and those who are passing. I have never heard of any man being drowned, but with loaded mules it frequently happens. The arriero tells you how to show your mule the best line, and then allow her to cross as she likes. The cargo mule takes a bad line, and is often lost. April 4th. From the Rio de la Vacas to the Puente de Incas, half a day's journey. As there was pasture for the mules, and geology for me, we bivouacked here for the night. When one hears of a natural bridge, one pictures to oneself some deep and narrow ravine, across which a bold mass of rock has fallen, or a great arch hollowed out like the vault of a cavern. Instead of this, the Incas Bridge consists of a crust of stratified shingle cemented together by the deposits of the neighbouring hot springs. It appears as if the streams had scooped out a channel on one side, leaving an overhanging ledge, which was met by earth and stones falling down from the opposite cliff. Certainly an oblique junction, as would happen in such a case, was very distinct on one side. The Bridge of the Incas is by no means worthy of the great monarchs whose name it bears. Fifth. We had a long day's ride across the central ridge from the Incas Bridge to the Ojos del Agua, which are situated near the lowest casucha on the Chilean side. These casuchas are round little towers, with steps outside to reach the floor, which is raised some feet above the ground on account of the snowdrifts. They are eight in number, and under the Spanish government were kept during the winter well stocked with food and charcoal, and each courier had a master key. Now they only answer the purpose of caves, or rather dungeons. Seated on some little eminence, they are not, however, ill-suited to the surrounding scene of desolation. The zigzag ascent of the Cumbre, or the partition of the waters, was very steep and tedious. Its height, according to Mr. Petland, is 12,454 feet. The road did not pass over any perpetual snow, although there were patches of it on both hands. The wind on the summit was exceedingly cold, but it was impossible not to stop for a few minutes to admire, again and again, the colour of the heavens, and the brilliant transparency of the atmosphere. The scenery was grand. To the westward there was a fine chaos of mountains, divided by profound ravines. Some snow generally falls before this period of the season, and it has even happened that the Cordillera have been finally closed by this time. But we were most fortunate. The sky, by night and by day, was cloudless, except for a few round little masses of vapour that floated over the highest pinnacles. I have often seen these islets in the sky, marking the position of the Cordillera, when the far distant mountains have been hidden beneath the horizon. April 6th. In the morning we found some thief had stolen one of our mules and the bell of the Madrina. We therefore rode only two or three miles down the valley, 
and stayed there the ensuing day in the hopes of recovering the mule, which the Arriero thought had been hidden in some ravine. The scenery in this part had assumed a Chilean character. The lower sides of the mountains, dotted over with the pale evergreen quillet tree, and with the great chandelier-like cactus, are certainly more to be admired than the bare eastern valleys, but I cannot quite agree to the admiration expressed by some travellers. The extreme pleasure, I suspect, is chiefly owing to the prospect of a good fire and of a good supper, after escaping from the cold regions above, and I am sure I most heartily participated in these feelings. 8th. We left the valley of the Aconcagua, by which we had descended, and reached in the evening a cottage near the Villa del St. Rosa. The fertility of the plain was delightful, the autumn being advanced, the leaves of many of the fruit trees were falling, and of the labourers. Some were busy in drying figs and peaches on the roofs of their cottages, while others were gathering the grapes from the vineyards. It was a pretty scene, but I missed that pensive stillness which makes the autumn in England indeed the evening of the year. On the 10th we reached Santiago, where I received a very kind and hospitable reception from Mr. Calclu. My excursion only cost me twenty-four days, and never did I more deeply enjoy an equal space of time. A few days afterwards I returned to Mr. Caulfield House at Valparaiso. End of chapter 15, part 2 Recording by Gavin Smith in Sydney, Australia